Chapter 4 Redeemed from the Curse of the Law I'm about to share three pieces of truth that I believe every Christian should know. Most Christians think they understand what you are about to hear, but they don't. I thought I understood it, but I didn't. In fact, it took 24 years and a major attack of sickness in my body before I understood it fully. The parable of the sower helps us to understand why we sometimes just don't get the revelation immediately. Let us begin there. In Mark chapter 4, verse 14, it says, The sower sows the word. Now we know that the word is the gospel. Specifically, we know that it is the message of the anointed one being anointed with the Holy Spirit and power by the anointer, which or who is God the Father. The Word is also Christ himself. He confirms this in the book of John. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. John 5.39 The witnesses to this amazing truth also occur earlier in the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1 and verse 1. And again in John 1 and verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We must therefore also grasp the truth that the Word of God is also Jesus Christ himself and all things that he brings us through salvation. We think that we understand this, but the truth is very few of us do. Jesus explains exactly why this is the case in the following words. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. My friends, watch out for the enemy. As soon as you begin to understand the truth, he will probably attempt to steal your revelation. Even now, as you listen to this book, watch out for distractions. They can come from any source. They are designed to get you off track long enough to forget what you have learned. Also, watch out for fleshy distractions which will take your concentration away from the truth of God's word. This is how he steals the word from us. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time afterward. When tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Mark 4, 16-17 My friends, watch out for offences. Unless you get that word down deep in your heart, it remains only on the surface and can easily be removed. Notice that tribulation and persecutions begin to arise because of the word. Get yourself ready now. You've begun to receive revelations regarding the one subject that the devil doesn't want you to know about. You should prepare yourselves for attacks on your faith. These may come through friends, 
relatives or loved ones. The fact is, the nearer they are to you, the more offended you are likely to become. Remember, there is too much at stake here. Don't let offences rob you of your truth. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Mark four eighteen and 19. Notice this time that the thorns or weeds were already present in the garden when the word was being sown. Think of these then as the things in your life that were already present at the point when you received your salvation. The primary two being the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Like any other garden, you will need to weed out regularly, otherwise the weeds and thorns will use up the nutrients in the soil. This means that you will have none left with which to procure your miracle. Equally, as the Lord pointed out, should the word actually find enough nutrients to help it to grow, ultimately the thorns will strangle its growth. We must not let this happen in our lives. We cannot be surface-level believers. Our faith must be deeply rooted and completely secured in the fact that God's word is truth. But these are the ones sown on good ground who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Mark 4.20 Finally, we reach the point where some seeds actually get into the good soil. In the book of Matthew, Jesus explains that this is he who hears the word and understands it. That man or woman according to the Lord, will bring forth fruit in varying levels of success. Interestingly, some are happy producing 30-fold or 60-fold, but if you are really after the fullness of God in your walk as a believer, you will want to see the 100-fold return on all of your seed planting. Fold meaning repeated harvests from a single seed, not percentage. The point that Jesus is making to us is that we need to honour the Word of God. We need to respect it. We need to believe in it with all of our hearts. We need to believe what it says and believe that it can change any circumstance in our lives. God's Word is the truth that can change any fact in our lives, as I've said many times before. Having said that, I am now ready to share one of the greatest truths written in the Word of God. If you are born again, you have been redeemed from every curse of the law. If you are born again, you have been redeemed from every curse of the law. In order for us to understand the magnitude of this statement, we must make an important study of the Word of God. According to the parable which we have just read, If we took each category in equal measure and treated it as a mathematical equation, then 75% of us didn't actually receive the fullness of the above statement. I am working on the assumption that the 75% represents the majority who will be reading or hearing these words. Therefore, in order to understand it, we must begin 
with an important question, which is, what is the curse of the law? In order to answer that question, we must visit the 28th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, where we will find some very familiar passages. In this chapter, the Lord meticulously lays out the effects of both obedience to his word, leading to the blessing, and the contrasting curses resulting from disobedience. It is almost unanimously theologically agreed that whilst the law contained many further ordinances as detailed in books like Leviticus and Exodus, the curses of the law are primarily listed between verses 15 and 61. The curses cover many areas, including health, finances, children, livestock, family, husbands and wives, to name but a few areas. Perhaps the most significant effect of the curse of the law is sickness and disease. You could lose all the money in the world, cars, houses, boats, husbands and wives, and still turn out okay in life. Indeed, I know some people who've lost everything that they had in this world, and yet they are still alive and well. Losing your health is another matter. You could have all the money and wealth in the world, but if you haven't got your health, your life will be miserable. This is why sickness and disease is by far the most calamitous effect of the curses. Deuteronomy 28.59 says, Then the Lord will make your plagues wonderful, and the plagues of your seed even great plagues, and of long continuance and sore sicknesses, and of long continuance. Moreover, he will bring on you all the diseases of Egypt, which you were afraid of, and they shall stick to you. Also, every sickness and every plague which is not written in the book of this law, them will the Lord bring on you until you be destroyed. Deuteronomy 28, 59-61 If you think about the above logically, you will begin to understand that every sickness mentioned or not mentioned above has been listed as a curse of the law. From the common cold to life-threatening cancers, brain tumours and heart disease. They are all curses of the law. Another way to say that is any one of these conditions may occur as a result of a broken law of God. In order for us to be free from sickness and dis-ease, you must understand the following statement. So listen carefully. Sickness and dis-ease draw their power and life from the curse of the law. Sickness and disease cannot survive without the law. The lifeblood of sickness and disease is the curse. Now consider the book of Galatians, chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the fullness of the Spirit through faith. Galatians three thirteen and 14. Notice the words, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. How did Christ redeem us from the curse of the law? You know, that is a very good question, and the answer is even better. The Bible tells us that he became the curse 
In other words, he absorbed the curse from the earth for us. He sucked up every piece of the curse of the law and drew it onto his body. The prophet Isaiah said that the chastisement of our peace was laid upon him. He bore our sicknesses and griefs. He carried our infirmities and sorrows. Yes, my friend, Christ drew every last piece of the curse of the law out of planet Earth. So the only way the enemy can put us back under it is to lie to us about it. That is the reason why Jesus called him the father of lies. He lies to us on a daily basis. He tells us that we are unworthy. He tells us that we are still under the curse, still under law. He says God is angry with us. And that is why the sickness won't go away. Many people are reading or hearing these words right now. And you're saying, yes, that's me. This is a very familiar story for many believers. In fact, I believe this is a major strategy of the enemy to keep us from our God-given destiny in Christ. The night when I realized this truth, I made up a poem. It goes like this. How can the sickness continue to stay now that Christ has removed the curse away? In case you missed that, let me say it again. Sickness and disease are completely dependent upon the curse of the law. Sickness and dis-ease are completely dependent upon the curse of the law. They cannot survive and grow where they are denied cursed ground. When the enemy tries to attack your body with sickness and dis-ease by planting it in your soil, you tell him that there is no cursed ground here. There's nothing to fertilize the sickness. Any sickness or disease that's planted in this soil will die instantly because Christ absorbed every curse from me. Hallelujah. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the just. Hallelujah. Proverbs 3 and verse 33. Conversely, of course, blessings grow in blessed ground. The parable of the sower culminates in the believer who hears the word of God and understands it. This is blessed ground, ready to receive the blessed word of God and generate a crop of health and blessings to our lives. In Jesus Christ's name. Amen. That's the end of chapter 4. Chapter 5. The Road to Healing it would not be wise of me to suggest that all healings will be instant, so I will not do that. They can be, like in my case, which you heard earlier. However, I would like to put the subject into some perspective. Please imagine, if you will, a candle with a burning flame inside a glass. The type that is very popular in shops these days. Have you ever tried to blow one of these out? What happens is, the flame is extinguished, but the wick smoulders, giving off choking smoke. If, on the other hand, you cover the glass so that air cannot enter or escape, in other words, in an airtight fashion, the flames will die the moment the oxygen is consumed. You see, the flame needed oxygen in order to survive. The moment you deprived it of its oxygen supply, it began to fade away. 
This, my friends, is what happens when a Christian understands that he or she has been redeemed from the curse of the law. Through Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed from the curse of sickness and disease. When the curse is removed, it will only be a matter of time before the sickness is deprived of its fuel. This is the way that I have received healing from the Word of God, and He is no respecter of persons. Take God's Word to your heart and act on it right now in Jesus Christ's name. Whether it takes one second, one minute, an hour, a week, or a month, you are healed. Receive it now. Sin and the Curse Now is it possible to be living a life with no sin, but yet be still under the curse? Sin and the curse are not coexistent. Dealing with one does not automatically mean that the other is cancelled out. In fact, they are very different. Sin, in this scenario, is the act of our disobedience to God's word, whereas the curse is the result of Adam's disobedience to God. It is therefore evident that someone could be living a completely sinless life whilst lacking the revelation that the curse has been removed by the Lord. Christ has dealt with sin, yet many Christians are ignorant of truth and live under the curse. This leaves the open door for the enemy to come in with deceptions and confusion. This individual should be living a victorious life, but instead he or she may be consistently fighting condition after condition. If we're going to live victoriously over the works of the enemy, we must not allow him to have any footholds in our lives. This is a major obstacle which we must overcome. All we have to do is believe the word of the Lord and watch the enemy lose his upper hand in the area of sickness and dis-ease. Am I saying that understanding this revelation will mean that you will never ever be sick again? No, I would be foolish to make that statement, but I will guarantee you this. If you believe the word of the Lord, the landscape of your battles will change completely. Your prayers will immediately be transformed from crying and begging to higher levels of faith and thanksgiving. Your tongue will no longer be confused by negative emotions, rather, you will be speaking clearly. You'll be taking authority over every condition that tries to raise itself above your knowledge of God. You will be in faith for your healing, and that, the Bible says, is the only way to be pleasing to Father God. Another interesting fact is how sickness has a secondary effect on our lives. The Bible truth says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Yahweh delivers him out of them all. Psalms 34 verse 19 as clear as this passage may be, if a minister or member of a church contracts a serious illness, often there is still an unspoken assumption that he or she must have committed some kind of sin. 
The result of that sickness is more than physical debilitation. There is another, much more serious condition which is present. It is the presence of shame. The fact is that the individual has some sickness. But the truth is that the sickness owes its existence not to the presence of sin, but rather to the presence of the curse. Jesus dealt with the sin condition more than 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. The Bible tells us that the blood which Christ shed is continuously cleansing us from sin every minute of every day as we walk in his light. 1 John 1 7. The Father loves us with a perfect love. He has forgiven all of our trespasses. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he, God, removed our transgressions from us. No, my friend. The sin condition in your life has been dealt with. It is only the curse that remains a problem. This is what the devil is using against us on a daily basis. I'm going to devote the next few chapters to dealing with one of the main barriers to our faith. Perhaps the main reason why we do not believe that the blessings promised in the Word of God belong to us is that we do not feel worthy enough to receive them. After all, why would God do this for me? Why would he heal me? We have already discussed the truth that you and I have been redeemed from the curse of the law. Even so, perhaps you are feeling guilty about a sin that you committed. Or perhaps you do not feel that you have been a good enough Christian to deserve to receive a healing from God. It's amazing when you begin to study these things out. Because when you do so, you will understand that God really isn't keeping a tally of your good works. That came as a complete shock to me one day as I was driving to church, praying to the Lord about a certain matter. I was telling him all about my good works, thinking it would stand me in good stead. I was reminding God of how many years I had served him, how many sacrifices I had made, etc., etc., The Spirit of God brought an abrupt end to my prayer, saying, Son, there is no merit score system in the kingdom of God. Salvation, the anointing, God's righteousness and justification by grace are all free gifts from God. You cannot qualify for any of them. You simply realize your lack and receive them with a heart of humility and thanksgiving. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John 1, 17-18 Note, grace and truth are here listed together. Grace speaks of receiving goodness from God, which we did not deserve or earn. It is very different to mercy, which speaks of you and I not receiving punishments that we actually deserved. Our forerunners, wonderfully pious, believing Jews, thought that they could earn the righteousness of God by their good works. But this was impossible for them. And since the Lord does not change, it is impossible for us also. Let us now look at three amazing gifts which God has given to his children, which empower us to receive the fullness of his blessings towards us today. Firstly, the anointing. 
Secondly, God's righteousness. And then finally, the name of Jesus. Praise God. End of chapter 5. Chapter 6. The Spirit of Truth. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? If I had a time machine, I would go back to this biblical moment and watch the entire thing taking place before my very eyes. Thank God for his word. If you look through the eyes of the Spirit, you can see it. Here stands Jesus Christ. He's nearing the end of his earthly ministry. He stands. He pauses. He thinks. Then he asks this million-pound question. Some say John the Baptist. Some Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Matthew sixteen fifteen to 20 Let's go back to that question. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? The disciples had been walking with Jesus for years, yet still they all had differing views on who he was. People had said so many things about their teacher that the disciples themselves were now unsure. This is precisely why I have been led to write this book. Members of the body of Christ need to be sure who Jesus is. I'm not going to tell you my opinion about who he is. I'm going to tell you who the word of God says he is. Jesus asked another question, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter knew something. He received a word of knowledge from the Lord, although it wasn't yet time for him to say what he knew. He sat quietly as the other disciples gave their answers to the Lord Jesus. Likewise, the Lord Jesus wasn't particularly bothered about what others were saying about him, but he immediately wanted to know what those closest to him had to say in response to those incorrect statements. I believe Jesus could sense that Simon's silence wasn't brought about by ignorance or shyness, but by the awesome magnitude of the revelation that had been given to him directly by God. Simon's answer was to produce a blessing unparalleled in the New Testament. It was to invoke a prophetic statement from our Lord Jesus that would echo throughout all time and serve as a mandate of power to every single member of the body of Christ. Jesus spoke a blessing which instantly released an incredible mantle of authority both on Simon Peter 
and on all of the generations in time to come, to whom this word would be revealed. And that, my friend, includes both you and I today. The Lord Jesus instantly declared a timeless prophetic word, not only to Simon Peter, but also to the entire church to come. Hallelujah. He said that it is upon this revelation or the revealing of himself in this manner that he will erect, establish and build his church. God the Father revealing the Son of God in the hearts of each and every believer would produce unparalleled growth of the kingdom of God in the earth. Now notice also he called it his church. And he said that his church, armed with this rock-solid revelation, would stand up against the very gates of hell. Through this scripture, we know for certain exactly what the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be comprised of today. It is to be the church born of revelation truth from Father God, walking in the absolute authority of God, having the keys or authority, to access the things of the kingdom of heaven. It is a church that is able to declare the matters of this world, both lawful and unlawful, binding and loosing with the authority of God, here in the earth, with the gates of hell not being able to prevail in any form against it. The word has been spoken and cannot be reversed. Therefore, we, as the church, must, by revelation, appropriate and receive this by faith. It is the Lord's will for us to walk in the victory which he promised through his word. If your church isn't the picture that I just painted, change it! What exactly did Simon Peter say? Let us examine his words carefully. Simon said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Or did he? Looking carefully again, we notice that Simon, Peter, was a Jew, and as such, he didn't speak Greek. Understanding his origins, he either spoke Hebrew or Aramaic. Christ is a Greek word, so although the text was translated this way, Simon didn't actually say, you are the Christ. Simon used the original Hebrew word for Christ, which is Messiah. He said, you are the Messiah, and this was later translated into the word Christ by the Greeks, who had interpreted the account into their own language. See Acts chapter 11, verse 26. Note, translation is key when it comes to understanding the mysteries of Christ. Imagine this thought. If we can determine exactly what Simon actually said, and if we can say it with the same conviction and belief that he did, it follows that we should receive the same resultant blessing from Jesus that Simon received. The blessing of God on Simon, who became Peter, was so mighty at times that the Bible records that his very shadow healed sick people as he passed them on the roadside. Likewise, I believe that the anointing on our lives can be just as powerful as Peter's, perhaps with even greater results. Why? Because the word of God says so. 
and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Acts chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. So what did Simon actually say? Simon said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Notice he didn't say, I think you are. He said, you are. Simon was fully convinced and persuaded that what he was saying was the truth. No opinion of man was ever going to change that. This attitude connected with Jesus in such a way that he instantly, perceiving Simon differently, changed his name from Simon to Peter. When I was growing up as a young Catholic boy, I was erroneously taught that Simon simply meant sand. But in fact, the name Simon is derived from Simeon, which means having heard. Interesting, isn't it? God gave him a prophetic name since he was the only one who actually did hear from him. The Lord Jesus completed the prophetic act by changing his name to Peter, indicating that such who receive this revelation will be more than just hearers. They will be a rock-solid addition to the body of Christ and the kingdom of God. Peter literally means a small fragment of a huge rock. Do you get it? Jesus is the rock. And he became a fragment of it. From now on, we will refer to Simon the same way Jesus did. We can call him Peter now because now we know why Jesus called him Peter. Why was it that although there were at least 12 men in that room, only Peter got what I call the rocky revelation? There must have been something about Peter's character which gave way to the unveiling of his mind. Christ was to everybody else in that room a mystery. I was born again for at least a year before I began to receive the revelation of Christ. I will never forget the way it happened. I was already a Christian, attending church, reading my Bible, etc., etc. I had not yet found the true purpose for my life. I was enjoying my faith, but for myself and no one else. I believe there are many Christians today who are just like I was then, unknowingly self-centered. The revelation of Christ is as much a mystery to them as it was to the other 11 disciples in Peter's day. The revealing of Christ did for me exactly what it did for Peter. It changed my identity and gave me a new purpose for living. I began to understand that being born again was more than just falling out or falling down, having wonderful visions and speaking in marvellous tongues. Although I did plenty of all three in my first year of being saved, and such marvels still continue today. I began to realize that God has a purpose for every Christian to become the rocky foundation stones upon which Jesus Christ can build his church. If you're going to receive the revelation of the anointing in your life, you're going to have to believe just as Peter did and just as I did. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Hallelujah. 
Make a rock-solid decision in your heart right now, no matter what anyone says, or what you may read on the internet, or in your local library. Understanding the mystery of Christ begins with your absolute unswerving faith in this absolute biblical truth. When you believed on Jesus Christ, you received the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit of truth. You became a part of the body of Christ. You became a Christian and therefore you are anointed with the Holy Spirit of truth. This is the truth. And here ends chapter 6.